Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians, we are continuing our exposition of the book of Colossians, and this morning we are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. I'll begin from reading from the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1 for the sake of context. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See it at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and the original purpose for which they are written to the Colossian church by the Apostle Paul. and That purpose stands fast. These words are still true, still applicable to us. They're still impactful. Help us to listen. Help us to understand. Help us to remember them. Help us to apply them to our lives. Help us to walk in light of them. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As I said last week, um, we are now in the application section of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul had spent the first half of his letter expressing thanks for the work of God and the impact of the gospel through him and then through a pass to the church at Colossae and he gives thanks for how it's bearing fruit through them and in the whole world and Paul goes on to explain in greater detail the specifics of the gospel in chapter 1 and 2 and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is, his true nature and his work of salvation and sanctification in and through them. And he does this primarily to fortify them and strengthen them in true and right doctrine in order that they may be able to resist and refute the false religions and false teachings around them concerning the person and work of Christ and what constitutes true spirituality and true holiness, true religion. 
And in the beginning of chapter 3, he makes this shift in his instruction from orthodoxy or right doctrine to orthopraxy or right practice and application of that doctrine. And he explains how we are to apply all of these great truths concerning salvation in Christ and union with Him by first giving a couple positive commands concerning sanctification here in the beginning of chapter 3. That in order to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness, we are to seek those things which are above and to set our minds on things above, primarily Jesus Christ, that He is above, that He is been raised that he is seated at the right hand of God. And then Paul gives us a couple negative commands in verses 5 to 8, that we are to put to death what is earthly in us, and to put away all those former sins in which we once walked. And he provides lists of particular sins relating to those commands. But then in this passage... In verse 9 to 11, he just gives us one sin that we are to put off. One command concerning the putting off of this sin, and it's almost as if this sin is in a category all its own. Do not lie to one another. And in his commentary on this passage, Curtis Vaughn, he writes this. He says, some think the sin of falsehood is singled out for special mention." Because in it, more frequently than in anything else, we manifest ill will toward our fellow men. At any rate, the fact that the sin of lying is given separate treatment makes the condemnation of it more emphatic. The truth of the matter is that there is something especially heinous about the sin of lying. And not just lying, but all of the implications concerning lies truth, falsehoods, and integrity. And I want you to see this connection between the command in verse 9 and and the applications of it, and then even what he says in verse 11. And in this passage, in verses 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul commands the church at Colossae to stop committing all forms of lying and deceit. And then he substantiates the seriousness of this command with three reasons why, all of which contain a principle of integrity. So in this passage, we see three principles of integrity, which we're going to look at this morning. First, the principle of individual integrity. Individual integrity. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. And I chose that word integrity um, for uh, a good reason. Uh, it, we, we can think of integrity as a, you know, more of a, a character quality that you say what you mean and, and you are exactly who you um, present yourself to be, that you're a person of integrity. Uh, we can think uh, almost as integrity is used as an engineering term, that like the whole of a ship has integrity or or the bridge has structural integrity, it, it, it will withstand, it has foundations, it's, it's consistent. And it goes back to the root of the word integrity is integer, a mathematical term, one. It is one. It's complete, it's consistent, it's solid. And that's really what Paul is, is in a sense, getting at 
in these verses, which is why he begins with this command, do not lie to one another. That we are to be people of integrity. Believers are to be um, people known for their integrity. And, and we are to have integrity with one another. And he gives us this command not to lie to one another. And oftentimes we cover up lying and lies by only defining them as lies. And what I mean by that is that we often categorize the sin of lying in clear black and white terms as either telling an outright lie or the truth. It's either, you know, black or white. You know, the sky is either blue or red or, you know, oftentimes that's how we view lying. But what does the ninth commandment say? Thou shalt not lie? Is that what it says? No. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which encompasses everything except a true testimony concerning your neighbor, concerning your interactions with your neighbor. It encompasses far more than just a black and white lie. And we see, I mean, this principle of individual integrity, first and foremost by this um, just clear and concise command, do not lie to one another. And we can see by the ninth commandment all throughout the the Bible, the Old Testament, that God commands integrity in His people. He commands integrity in His law. He commands integrity in all people. Beginning in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then that's further fleshed out in the law and in Leviticus and other parts of the Bible, in the Proverbs especially, in some Psalms. Leviticus 19, verse 11 says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And many times, we we see this especially in Leviticus, that after um, God gives a law, He says, I am the Lord. The strength that, that you shall follow this law, you shall not transgress against this law, because I am the Lord, I am God. And you have taken my name. You are called by my name. Therefore, you are to act consistently with my name. You are to be, have integrity. In fact, uh, you know, uh, some of us have you know, New Testament Bibles with uh, the words of Jesus in red. And you know, if the Old Testament had the words of God in red. You know what the, the most, the, the, the portion of the Bible which would have the most red would be Leviticus. Because God is speaking. He's giving his law. His law is to be followed. And yes, as New Testament believers, as New Covenant believers, under the New Covenant of grace, um, many of those uh, laws pertain to Israel and uh, we're theocratic in nature, and Christ has fulfilled the law that, that we are made righteous only through Christ, but yet um, many of those laws pass over, especially the Ten Commandments. And, and they still um, bear relevance to us. But what the Ninth Commandment is really getting at is deception. It's 
it's forbidding any form of deception, which is lying, but it defines it a bit better and it gets at the heart of what lying really is. Not bearing false witness. In his booklet, Deception, is a, a, a small counseling booklet, Lou Priolo, he says this. He says, Deception involves deliberately communicating to another person something that one does not believe to be true. The dictionary defines the verb lie as to make an untrue statement with intent to, to deceive. So when you intentionally express something outwardly that contradicts that which you judge to be true inwardly, you are deceiving. Deception is deliberately misleading another who has neither been informed of one's intentions to mislead him nor requested to be misled. There's, there's many ways we can deceive people um, without just explicitly, verbally um, doing so. You can lie in many ways. I think of, you know, there's, there's many games in, in our culture, um, some of them board games, some of them card games, in which um, deception is a part of the game. Putting on the poker face, um, having bids, bluffing. Um, and some of those games, they, they can be fun, and, and playing those games is, is a matter of conscience. But nonetheless, um, there's deception. There's deception in warfare. There's deception in business. There's deception in advertising. There's deception in politics. There's deception in many um, parts of our culture and society. Lou Priolo goes on to say, there are two basic ways to deceive. Deception can be accomplished by falsifying information or by concealing information. Falsification involves distorting the truth. Changing the essential facts of, the, of a matter. Concealment involves withholding vital elements of the truth, omitting the essential facts. So what, what exactly is lying? It's, it's bearing false witness. It's exaggerating. It's overemphasizing. It's leaving out pertinent information. It's intentionally misleading. It's gossip, flattery, politicking, and manipulating. Gaslighting, spreading misinformation, slander, and anything else which distorts the truth. That is what the ninth commandment is getting at. That is what this commandment is getting at in Colossians 3. And we are not to lie to one another in, in all forms of deception. The, the subtle and the explicit. Leviticus 19, once again, verse 15 to 16. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. It's not just those black and white explicit lies, but sometimes our mannerisms, sometimes our tone. This goes back to what, you know, we... we we hear in court, we hear in, on all the, you know, lawyer shows when someone comes into court and they're, they're, they're sworn in, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And there's a reason why that, that phrase in, you know, lawyers, judges, legal language is carefully crafted, even down to the comma and the period. 
There's a reason why those phrases were picked. Do you swear to tell the truth, that everything that you say is the truth, and the whole truth, all of it, not leaving out, not spreading misinformation, not trying to lead people astray, and, and nothing but the truth. That all of what comes out of your mouth is truth, and, and not partial truths, not half-truths. And we see in, in God's law that He commands integrity. He commands integrity in His law, and He commands integrity in His people. He, he goes on um, after giving the, the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus 20, and um, Moses is given further um, laws, further uh, elaboration on these laws. In Exodus 23, in verse 1, it says this, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. It's in everything. We shall be people of integrity in, in all our actions, in our mannerisms, in our speech, definitely. But with the people we side with. And, and even right here, we just read that, you know, you shall not fall in with the many. Or to side with the many so as to pervert justice. Sometimes we, we don't have to speak to do that. We just, you know, peer pressure. We move to the other side of the room. We don't associate with certain people that are bold enough to go against the official narrative, whether that be in the workplace or in society or in school or whatever it may be. And in a sense, we're bearing false witness. We are perverting justice. We are not standing on the side of truth just by our mannerisms and our actions, our associations. John Calvin wrote in his commentary, When he forbids lying, he condemns every sort of cunning and all base artifices of deception. There's a sense of just by your associations. There's... We see this in politics. There is a subtle art of politics. And it's not just in our, our civil government. There's politics in office places and workplaces and um, on the playground. We learned that early. And sad, it's in church as well. Anywhere where there's a sizable amount of people, there's politicking, there's manipulating, there's sin. There's a bearing false witness. It might not be an outright lie, but we can do it by our subtle mannerisms. God commands integrity. Lying is a serious sin. And we, we can agree with that, that the outright lie, the explicit lie, the bold-faced lie is a serious sin. 
But there's also subtle lies that are just as serious. You think of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You probably are familiar with that, that narrative, that scene. And it's so subtle. Because what had happened in the previous chapter, Barnabas had sold a piece of property and, and he, he had given it to the, the, the money to the apostles, laid it at their feet to be used by the church to be distributed. It was a good gift. It was a uh, sacrificial gift. But then Ananias and Sapphira thought that they would do the same thing, yet they held back part. And Peter says to him, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And you can read right there that, that Peter said, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He, he could have rightfully kept the land. He could have not sold it. He, he could have still sold it and kept back portion. He could have given 5%. He could have given 10%. He could have given 50% of the land. But he made it appear as if he was giving all of it. That was the lie. And he probably didn't speak, or there probably wasn't too many words associated with that. He just came in by their way of appearance, by almost making it seem so. And it was a lie. And God killed them. And there's, there's no reason to believe that Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers. They were, every indication shows that they were believers. But this is God's discipline. And the effect of it was great because great fear came upon all who heard of it. And people sat up straight in their seats. They, they, they were watching. <laughs> they, they, they felt conviction. And it was good. That's why God did it. Because lying is a serious sin. Lying is connected to every other sin. It's, it's in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, we see the subtle lies of the devil. Lying is an abomination to God. It, it, it's contrary to the truth. Lying is inconsistent with new life in Christ. Lying is opposite to confession. Lying destroys unity. And ultimately, lying and all forms of lying and deception, bearing false witness, it's, it's rooted in unbelief. That God will not supply all of my needs. That I got to manipulate, to um, deceive, to politic, to, um, by way of cunning, um, get where I need to get and achieve what I need to achieve. It's also rooted in selfishness. Not, that's usually what we see lying in the context of. Or not to get what I don't want. Oftentimes when we Sin, a lot of times, and this is probably for most believers, when we lie or when we deceive, it's usually because we're pressed into a circumstance or a situation that is not going to go our way. And 
maybe trials, maybe even persecution. And we see this way of escape through a subtle lie, a subtle falsehood, of bearing false witness, of going along with the crowd, of not standing on the side of truth. And so we lie so that we can escape. God commands integrity. And we see this principle of individual integrity first and foremost in his commands for integrity, his commands against lying, against falsehood. But we also see this principle of individual integrity in the fact that um, our old nature was contrary to integrity, and we are to put off that old nature. And that's the first reason why we are to have integrity, why we are to be people of the truth, is that we have put off the old self with its practices. That our old nature was contrary to integrity. We, as the Bible clearly says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were children of the devil. We were enemies of God. We were contrary to everything that God is. We were, uh, in a sense, as even Jesus said, a child of the devil, a son of disobedience. This is what the Bible says about us, and, and oftentimes we don't like to hear that or like to think of our unconverted nature in that sense or, or even an unconverted family member who we love, but the Bible is true that those who are not in Christ are sons of the devil. They are an enemy of God. Jesus says this in John chapter 8. At the end of the chapter, he's trying to tell the Jews who he is And they're not accepting him. They're not accepting his words, his miracles, everything that he is. And at the end of John chapter 8 and verse 44, he tells them, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. This is not just the Jews that he was talking about. Yes, specifically, he was speaking to those Jews who would not accept his testimony, who would not accept his truth. But this is true of every unconverted person. That there's two families. There's a family of God and there's a family of the devil. You're either uh, a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There's no middle ground. The Bible's clear on that. And our old nature, being a child of the devil, the father of lies, was contrary to integrity. We lived according to our own law. We were, in a sense, held captive by the devil to do his will, as uh, the Bible says. Enslaved to various lusts, held in bondage to his world system of lies and false religions. Our old nature was contrary to integrity. And and this is the first reason why Paul tells us not to lie to one another, not to engage in deception, because we have put off the old self with its practices. Our old nature was contrary to integrity, and we have put it off. But not only that, but our old practices were inconsistent with integrity. Your old practices were inconsistent with integrity. 
living in sin, living for self, living after Satan. You know, we look at his lies. He being the father of lies, his lies are good. Not good in the sense that they are morally good, but good in the sense that they are effective. They are proficient. They are as good as a lie could be in terms of being passed off as the truth. And we see, like, even in his lie to Eve, that first he injects that doubt. Did God really say? Did God really say? In lying, we, we can see, we can look at all lies after the pattern of Satan. Like, lying is always used either to tempt into sin, to sin, or to cover up sin. It's always lying itself is a sin, but it's always connected with other sins. But however, the, the, the flip side to that, the, the, the silver lining in the dark cloud, so to speak, with lying is that um, if you're able to put off all forms of lying and falsehood, you'll cut off a host of other sins at the root. Because lying is contrary to God, because God is the truth. There was a, a church I was in not too long ago. I was a member of a, a big church, uh, and there was an elder there who um, we took a parenting class, and, and he said that um, when he was raising his, his kids, he had a zero-tolerance policy for lying in his home. Any sort of lie, any sort of de- deception, immediate discipline. Immediate. In contrast to any other form of... Um, disobedience from his children, lying was the worst. Because he wanted to instill in his children the importance of telling the truth, of being honest, of having integrity. Because if you learn to lie, or if lying is not cut off, then that will lead to a host of all other sins. And especially if you're a good liar, then you'll be, you'll be very good at sin. You'll be good at getting away with sin. And especially children. They learn to lie. They're, they're already going down the wrong path. It needs to be dealt with. William Barclay wrote in his commentary, It is easy to distort the truth. An alteration in the tone of voice or a meaningful look will do it. And there are silences which can be as false and misleading as any words. Christian speech must be kind and pure and honest to everyone, everywhere. You think of that, our, our, our tone of voice, our mannerisms, our looks, our um, demeanor, and how we speak. It, it can run contrary to our speech. It can be used sarcasm, even though what we're saying is true. The manner in which we say it can be misleading. It can be used to distort the truth and Politicians are great at this. They're masters at it. And sad to say, there's some people in the church, and and a lot of times you see this in bigger churches um, where people are trying to gain power, and they learn that subtle art of manipulating and playing politics. And it's deception. It's cunning. It's lying. It's evil. So we see first in... 
this passage, the principle of individual integrity, which is expressed in the command in verse 9, do not lie to one another. And then second, we see the principle of divine integrity. Verse 10, you not only have, you have put off the old self, verse 9, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're not only to have integrity within ourselves as a person of integrity, but believers are to have integrity with Christ because we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator, of Jesus Christ. We, we have been recreated by God in salvation that if anyone who, who is in Christ is a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come, we are recreated in the image of Christ, but we are being transformed, conformed to the image of Christ, renewed in the knowledge of God after the image of our Creator. We are to be a new man. Made after the second Adam. Everything that the first Adam failed to do, um, we are um, to be recreated in. Curtis Vaughn, he writes this, and he says this, concerning this concept of put off, put on. He says, the picturesque language gives vivid expression to a great truth, but one must be careful not to press the imagery too far. For we are painfully aware that the old nature is ever with us. The new self is described as being renewed in knowledge. The essential thought is that the new self, the new nature, does not decay or grow old, but by constant renewal takes on more and more of the image of its creator. Being renewed. The, the verb is present tense, expressing a continuous process of renewal. And then knowledge is represented either as the goal or as the sphere of this process. It denotes a true knowledge that, that we are to, there's this principle of divine integrity that we are to be one with Christ. We've been re recreated in, by Christ and in the image of Christ and we're being conformed to His image. And as we're being conformed, we are being, in a sense, drawn up into a divine integrity with Him. Paul gives us this principle of individual integrity first, but then there's this second principle of divine integrity. As we are being conformed to Christ, we are becoming more and more like Him so that eventually we will be one with Him. We will have integrity with Him. Second, we are being sanctified by the truth. This is another aspect of this principle of divine integrity. We, we have not only been recreated by God, but we are being sanctified by the truth in knowledge. The truth of Christ. As even Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he says, he says, I am the way, the way to follow, the way to salvation, but then he says the truth, everything about him, everything that he said was true. And even his presence frustrated people. It, it opposed this world. Light has shone into the darkness. He was essentially truth. In his being, he is all, not just his words and not just his 
his thoughts and his actions, but in his being, he is truth. And, and just the fact that he came shows the truth of this world, of who God is. That God created this world and this world is fallen and broken because of sin. And because of that, because God is, is just, He must punish all sin. But also because He is merciful and loving and forgiving, He sent His Son to be a sacrifice for sinners, to redeem, to seek and to save that which is lost. And, and He encompasses truth. He is truth in His being. And we are being conformed to Him. Even the Apostle Paul, he, he in a sense, uh, elaborates on this to the Corinthians. He's talking about um, his ministry and the gospel. And in that day and age, in, um, in the Greco-Roman world, um, especially amongst the Greeks, um, there were philosophers, there were orators, there were public speakers. And it was a career. You could make... Um, uh, a good living of this, and, and, and teachers would, would go to the marketplaces, and they, they would philosophize, and, and, and then they would have disciples, and they would have gatherings, and, and they would um, make a name for themselves, and also make a living for themselves doing this. And, and so um, when Paul and the apostles and the other um, disciples came spreading the gospel, um, oftentimes Paul was likened to one of these orators, one of these Greek philosophers, that, um, but just with a different philosophy. And he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 to 4, he says this, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Talking about um, persuasive arguments and speech. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only is, is Paul saying that he has individual integrity, with the people he's preaching to in regards to the gospel, that he has integrity with his message, that he is not practicing cunning and persuasive speech just to gain a following, which, sad to say, we can see in evangelicalism today and in church culture that there are many preachers out there doing this exact same thing, that they are practicing cunning to gather a following, to gather a people, to make a name for themselves. But Paul says, no, we do not do that, that we just preach the truth, the open statement of the truth to everyone, the gospel, who Jesus Christ is. And then he goes on, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled... Concealed, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Saying that Satan, the father of lies, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's deceived them. That's what he does. He's the father of lies. He deceives. And he deceives through all the false religions of the world, but the gospel is true. It's the truth of Christ, and Christ is truth. He is, 
essentially truth, and, and we are being sanctified by that truth in knowledge. The knowledge of Christ. It, it's the principle of divine integrity. That we are being made one with Christ through the truth. That we are being sanctified by the truth, the truth of His Word, the truth of His person, the truth of His gospel. As, as Jesus says in His high priestly prayer in John 17, to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That we are to be in line with the truth. That we are to have integrity with the truth. That we are to be one with Jesus Christ. One with God who is truth. We are to be one with God who is truth. John Calvin once again writes this. We learn, on the one hand, what is the end of our regeneration. That is, that we may be made like God and that His glory may shine forth in us. And on the other hand, what is the image of God, of which mention is made by Moses in Genesis 9-6? The rectitude and integrity of the whole soul, so that man reflects like a mirror the wisdom, righteousness, and goodness of God. God Himself is integrity. He is one. Three in one. Perfect integrity, perfect truth, oneness. Even all the way back in um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the Shema, what Israelites would speak, what they would, um, in a sense, put on their, they, 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 they twisted this, these verses and you see modern Jews, they put it on their head, the frontlets. Um, that's that verse. It's, it's the core of their belief that God is one. But they, they fail to say, see the, the Trinity, which would further be um, uh, revealed later on. And even alluded to in the Old Testament. But God is one. He's perfect, perfectly one. In divine simplicity and divine integrity. God is also truth. Therefore, He cannot lie, and He hates all lies and falsehood. Numbers 23 is, you know, and it's interesting, this, the, the, the false prophet Balaam, when he's um, trying be, to be hired by Balak to curse Israel, he, he, he says, I, I can only speak what God gives me. And he says this in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he, has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God has perfect integrity, perfect truth, perfect consistency. And we are being drawn into that. We, we are to have, there's this principle of divine integrity as we are putting off the old self and to put on the new self and to be renewed, recreated in the knowledge after the image of our Creator, of Jesus Christ, that we are to have integrity with Him. And because God is integrity and God is truth, He hates all lies, all falsehoods, anything that is contrary to the truth. Proverbs 6, verse 16 says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. If you, if you ever want to know what God is opposed to, what He hates, what He is against, here's a, a passage right here, Proverbs 6, 16. 
There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are the things that God hates. And it even ends, you know, the one who sows discord among brothers, because that is contrary to integrity. It's contrary to oneness. And telling the truth, not lying, not engaging in any form of deception, that contributes to integrity, individual integrity, divine integrity, because God will be one with his people. He calls us to be one, to be people of integrity, to be one with him. That there will be a, a divine integrity as he calls us into um, closeness and union with him. We're united with him through Christ, but there is an increasing union as we grow in holiness. And as we are glorified, we will be completely one with him. But because we who are in Christ are one with Christ, our sins not only affect our relationship with Christ, but our sins affect our relationship with one another. Even if, even if those sins are not, are not committed against one another, they affect the unity and the integrity of the body as a whole. And especially those particular sins concerning lying and falsehoods, which brings us to our next point. We have seen the principle of individual integrity and that first command not to lie to one another and then the uh, principle of divine integrity that we are being renewed in the knowledge of Christ after the image of our creator who is Christ and now we see the principle of corporate integrity verse 11 here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The church is to have integrity in Christ together, oneness. We, we are to be, have individual integrity, um, integrity with Christ and integrity with one another. We're all, we're, we're moving towards this oneness, this integrity. The church is, it, we see this in verse 11, that there's all these different groups, all these different people groups that, that Paul is explaining. And we could probably see this in our own church and in our own backgrounds, that the church is a unified diversity. That we are a, a diverse group of, of peoples. And, and it may be a little bit harder to see in, in, in certain contexts, where people don't move about as much in terms of um, moving jobs and schools and locations. But definitely we, we see this more in metropolitan areas and especially in, in, in uh, many of the churches that Paul um, ministered to in those large cities in, in the Greco-Roman Empire where um, all different people groups moved about. It's all, all sorts of different types uh, one, one commentator, he writes this, he says, Even as individual believers must discard old sinful habits, the body of Christ must realize 
its unity and destroy the old barriers that separate people. And this is where you see these verses are, are connected in a sense. It starts with the individual in integrity of not lying to one another, being a person of integrity, and, and then being one with Christ, and then being one with each other. That there, as Paul says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And, and what he's saying is he's saying that there are diverse ethnicities, Greek and Jew. There are diverse religious backgrounds, circumcised and uncircumcised. There are diverse cultural backgrounds, the Hellenized and the barbarians. It's interesting, you, oftentimes we, we hear the term barbarian and we, we might think of like um, some of those uh, more medieval type movies or comic books, Conan the Barbarian. And, and, uh, but that word, barbarian, it goes back to, in a sense, it's, um, the word is, is what the theologians would call onomatopoetic, um, and I'm probably messing up even that term, but what it means is the, the, the term sounds exactly what it means, like what it means. So um, what the Greeks saw when they said um, barbarian, it was bar, 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 bar. Like that, that's how they felt like they spoke. Like, like it was, it was um, almost um, incoherent. It was, it was a low, vulgar type speech and even their, um, their culture. Alexander the Great, when he conquered the world or the known world at that time and spread his empire, he, he, he didn't want to um, conquer and rule just to make himself known or to um, make a name for himself or, or to even conquer and rule, though that was definitely a big part of it. But he wanted to Hellenize the world, to turn, turn them into Greeks, so to speak, to influence the world in the Greek culture because the Greeks thought that they were more civilized and better than everybody else. They thought that they were better than everybody else. And this is why Paul you know, gives this verse and just the greatness of what Christ has done in the church in bringing Greek and Jew together. And not just Greek and Jew, but Greek and barbarian. And then he says uh, Scythian, or you can say Scythian, um, whatever it may be, um, he, he notes that because that was a, a, another type of what they would consider barbarians that was the most ruthless, the most crude, the most evil, the most hostile, the most uncultured um, ethnic, ethnicity or ethnic group. And, and you could read it even like this, like um, barbarians... Even Scythians, the, the, the worst lowlifes of that time and age. You know, even those hillbillies in that holler over there. You know, um, even those people, you know, or, or whatever ethnic group you want to, he says, even, even them. He brings them all in. And they are one. And there's, there's not to be any dissension, any discord, any hostilities, any name-calling, none of that anymore. There's to be this, this corporate 
integrity because of what Christ has done. And with that, because we know that even, I mean, you can go any, any group of people. And where there's differences, whether that's short and tall, big or small, um, you know, smart, dumb, um, different colors, whatever, different ways you dress, there, there's an opportunity for division, for gossip, for slander, for lying, for falsehoods, for discord, for um, all sorts of evil, wherever there's differences, because, well, that person's not like me. It's partiality. It's what um, the Bible calls, it's the sin of partiality, being partial. And yet the church is to have integrity. It's to be one. And it's, it's made one in Christ. And, and with that is the implication and the application that all deception, all falsehoods, all politicking, all manipulating, all lying is to be put off. It's not to be named amongst us. One commentator, he, he, he writes this. He says, um, concerning this other distinction, slave and free. He says, a, a social barrier had always existed between slaves and free men. Aristotle had referred to slaves as a living tool. But faith in Christ removed the separation. And this is probably one of the biggest barriers in the in the ancient world, that all of, until recent history, slavery was just, it was just commonplace. It was the way things were done. And it wasn't necessarily one ethnic group against another. It was a lot of times, especially in the Greco-Roman world, it was all ethnicities. It was a, a conquered people. Sometimes it was a, a, a Roman, you know, same ethnicity enslaving another Roman. It was just the way things were done. It was the way empires were built. And Paul says, not only here, but in several other places throughout the New Testament, that the church is to have such integrity that slaves and free men are to get along, are to be brotherly and kind towards one another. In a sense, and we'll see later on in, in this chapter and in other places in the New Testament, masters are to treat their slaves in such a way that the slave wouldn't want to leave, that the slave would be happy. They would be thankful and be like, why would I go serve anybody else? This master takes care of every need. He watches after me. He protects me. He provides for me. And that points to our relationship with God. Because the Bible, you know, slavery is an illustration of our relationship with God. We were once all slaves to sin, but in Christ we are slaves to righteousness. And that's what we should yearn for. We are to have this corporate integrity because the church is a unified diversity. And the members, second, the members are united in Christ. We are made to be one with him through his life, death, and resurrection. We, we have been baptized into his death, and we are being raised with him to new life. We have been raised with him to new life. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that. He, he um, 
elaborates on that, this wonderful truth of union with Christ, because he came to redeem his people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is why Paul says in, at, at the end of uh, Colossians uh, 3.11 that Christ is all and in all. All these members. Another commentary, he writes, Christ absorbs in himself all distinctions, being to all alike, everything that they need for justification, sanctification, and glorification. In all, all who believe and are renewed without distinction of person. The sole distinction now is how much each draws from Christ. The unity of the divine life shared in by all believers counterbalances all differences, even as great as that between the polished Greek and the rude Scythian. Christianity imparts to the most uncivilized the only spring of sound, social, and moral culture. There's so, you know, so many organizations, so many um, ideologies concerning um, unity in our culture. Um, you know, we have, we have so many organizations that are trying to manufacture um, unity, and, and yet at the same time, a, 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 a unity and diversity. And they do it through all sorts of things that we see in our culture affirmative action, um, uh, the wokeness and critical race theory. Um, and the reality of it is, is that true unity is only found in Christ. Only, and the church should be a, a picture of this to the world that, that you know, we should have people from every background, every distinction that are one with one another, that there's no, um, no discord, there's no deception, there's no politicking, there's no manipulation, there's oneness, there's corporate integrity, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in us and that we maintain that integrity, that oneness, and, and that's essentially what Paul is getting at. He, he's in a sense working from the individual basis in that first command, do not lie to one another, that having um, personal and individual integrity because uh, Christ has made us one with him and we are being made one with him and there will be this sense of divine integrity that is successively being um, worked out as we are sanctified and we will be one with him. But then there is this corporate integrity that he calls us Two, that there's, there's to be no division. And the main way that division happens is, is through discord and deception. The body must maintain its integrity, first and foremost, for the sake of the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy, and this is a, the purpose statement in 1 Timothy in chapter 3 and verses 14 to 15. The whole reason why he writes this letter to him, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth concerning 
um, God and mankind and what Christ did to redeem mankind. We are to be that pillar and buttress of the truth, in, in a sense, upholding that truth for the world to see. And we do that by our integrity, by our holy living, by our unity. We uphold the truth. We behave rightly. Part of that, the main part of that is to put off all lying and falsehood. We maintain our integrity for the sake of the gospel. We maintain our integrity for the sake of Christ. It's interesting when, when um, Jesus was being confronted by Pilate. And many have written journal articles on this and, and the presupposition and the ideologies that, that Pilate held to and that Jesus was, in a sense, confronting. And Pilate is questioning him. And Jesus answers him in John 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, get this, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But then Pilate, he said to him, what is truth? It just shows the spirit of our age and the, the, the ideologies of, of almost all unbelievers. Everything's subjective. No, nothing is absolute. Nothing can be confirmed. Nothing is solid. There's no purpose. There's no meaning except what I attribute to my life and to the world. It's all, it's all subjective. What, what is truth? But we are called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. We are to be true. We are to be people of integrity. And we must maintain our integrity for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. Jesus, once again, in his high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Integrity begets integrity. That God is one, because, but because sin entered into the, this world, he, he created us in His image and likeness, and almost as um, to, be, uh, to put on display His glory in the world his, as His vice regents and and. We were, in a sense, one with him. Adam and Eve were, in a sense, had a relationship with him. But when sin entered in, it broke that relationship. And it came through the father of lies. And deception spread. Lies about the whole world, about truth, about purpose, about meaning, about the nature of mankind and reality. And false religions and worldviews spread. And people are held in bondage. Deceived and deceiving. Yeah, God comes, Jesus Christ comes, truth, to spread truth, to proclaim the truth, to bear witness to the truth, that we may know the truth and be saved by the truth. Yeah. Know the truth and it will set you free. It will set you free 
And we are to be people of the truth. There's not to be any lies or deceptions or politicking or uh, manipulating within us. We're to be one because of what God has done in us. But there is a warning. Because, you know, Satan is the father of lies. We live in a world of lies. God hates all lying, all falsehood, because he is true. And therefore, he will punish every single lie. Jesus said he will judge you for every careless word. Even at the end of of the Bible, in Revelation, it says this. There's this this final call to those who, who would hear these words, who would read them to repent and believe, and a final call concerning the judgment of this world, concerning the judgment of sin. The Apostle Paul writes, God speaking through him in Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, he ends that list with all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All liars. And there is a sense that that encompasses all the rest of those sins. That encompasses all of mankind. Because you may be familiar with the evangelistic approach, the way of the master, that evangelists go out and they'll... They'll talk to somebody and they'll say, have you ever told a lie? And almost always someone says, yes. Yes. Well, how many lies have you told? I don't know. He's like, what, what, what do you call a person who tells lies? A liar. So by your own confession, you're a liar. And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. We must repent. We must seek the truth. We must seek Christ. John, who also wrote Revelation, wrote an epistle. 1 John, his first letter. He wrote this letter so that those who were believers but were struggling concerning whether or not they were true, whether or not their salvation was true or not, whether or not they had truly been converted, would know. That they would know that they have eternal life. And he says this in the beginning of his letter, 1 John in verse 8. He says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's the, that's the thing. <clears throat> all man, all, all people have lied in some form or another. But if, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. That's self-deception. It's clear. If we look at the standard, it's clear that we can see that we fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have lied. All have deceived in some manner or form to get what they want. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all sins, to redeem us, to save us. But He flips it then. If we say we have not sinned, 
Not only are we lying, but we make him a liar because his word says that we have all sinned and shows us that we have all sinned. And so the command is not to lie to one another, not to deceive ourselves, and especially in the most important things concerning eternal life, our salvation, where we will spend eternity. And if we get that right, and we focus on what Christ has done, we seek Him while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near. If we know Him, if we are one with Him, then we will be one with one another. Heavenly Father, these are strong words. These are true words. These are words that cut to the core of our sinfulness. That you are true. Everything about you is true. You are the truth. You sent Jesus Christ to bear witness to the truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and only uh, through Jesus Christ can we come to you. Can we be forgiven? Can we be made whole? And So Lord, I, I pray if there's anyone here, and certainly there is, who does not know you, that they would see their lost condition. That they would see that their sins deserve your condemnation, your punishment, and that they would seek you while you may be found and, and call upon you while you are near and may know your forgiveness and may be made one with you. And for those of us who are one with you, who have been forgiven, Lord, help us to... Um, be careful to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to be one, to be people of integrity, people who do not lie, who have put off all deception, all falsehood, all manipulation, all cunning, to let our yes be yes and our no be no, to be people of the truth, and Lord, help us to be one as you are one. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.